On Sunday and Saturday, this last weekend, we looked at verses one through uh, 13. Uh, talked about the priority of prayer, prayer and the pattern for prayer, the persistence in prayer and the promises for prayer. All that Jesus talked about it when the disciples saw him praying and said, said Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus went and gave us all of that really good stuff on this last weekend. And we pick it up here in chapter uh, 11, verse 14. And he was casting out a devil and it was dumb. And it came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake and the people wondered. But some of them said, he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. Wow, we start off with quite a situation uh, that's kind of, kind of crazy, really. Jesus had been casting out devils and demons. We've seen this already in our gospel narratives, uh, even here in Luke, but this time it's a little different. And, um, and you might sense something different. Why are the people suddenly kind of weirding out by this particular one? It says the people wondered, Jesus had already cast devils and demons out, if you recall. What's the deal with this one? Well, as it turns out, um, this one is uh, unique in that it makes the uh, person who's you know, possessed dumb where he cannot speak. Now, this is something you should be aware of because the tra tradition of the Jews at that time period, they had sort of a different weird view that wasn't something that came from God. It was something that they had worked out in their traditions. Um, this might be uh, interesting to you that um, you know, this whole devil demon thing, first of all, we have to be really careful not to over heebie-jeebie the whole thing. I think, you know, movies where there's green vomit and head spinning and stuff has done such a disservice to the idea of devils and demons. If I'm the devil, I would love for people to think more of a cartoon or more crazy stuff um, because I don't think it's, it's the, the craziest stuff sometimes that is where the devil has his greatest victories. It's the more subtlety uh, approach that, that Satan uses. I think this is an important thing. You know, Satan is called a deceiver. Um, in fact, uh, Revelation 12, 9, you know, he's called the serpent, the devil, and Satan, which deceives the whole world, it says there in Revelation 12, 9. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he transforms himself into an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen tells us that. And so one of the things we have to be careful of is just getting into this demonology stuff and you kind of see the, the wacko weird stuff. People like to get all heebie-jeebied out. But I think a lot of it's deception. And one of the things we see here is this idea of Satan, Beelzebub, as he's called here, uh, by the you know, Jews. Um, uh, is it possible that we make too much out of demonology and then sometimes make an equal mistake of not making enough out of it? What do you mean, Brett? Well, um, I think that here we see Jesus being accused of something, uh, doing the work under the influence of Beelzebub. Now, who in the world do you say is Beelzebub? Um, well, that's an interesting word. It's a word that, uh, you know, if you go to the, the Greek, the original Greek language, it's um, Beelzebul uh, is the Greek word. Um, and it means Lord of the house or Lord of the dung or filth. Um, that's that's a, a reference to Satan himself that the Jews would be making here. It's kind of interesting, but there, there's an old rep representation uh, and you'll come across the different variations of this word. In fact, one of the words you'll see like in 2 Kings um, in the Hebrew, it comes, the Hebrew word is um, Beelzebub or Baalzebub. Notice the two A's instead of the two E's. What's the difference? 
Well, the difference is the Hebrew uh, people would often link Baalzebub to Baal of the Old Testament Hebrew language, uh, the, the, the God that the Canaanites would worship and what have you. Um, and that's where you get more of this idea of Lord of the fly or the flies. Um, maybe you remember reading stuff about that in college and stuff. But uh, all that to say, these are all words referring to Satan and what have you. Um, but really the Lord of the, Lord of the house, Lord of the dungs or Lord of the flies, um, it really means Lord of the demons is kind of the idea, uh, which is kind of an interesting thing. Do you think Satan is organized? Um, we see here, uh, we're gonna see today that uh, Jesus is gonna sort of imply that Satan is organized. He's, he's got a leadership structure and they tend to follow uh, his lead. We'll see that perhaps tonight. Um, but you know, what do, we, what do we really know about demons and what have you? But the Bible has a lot to say about that. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness, uh, darkness. Uh, this is the kind of the, um, the idea that the Bible talks about. Um, I, I, I've noticed that Christians, we get into this stuff uh, in sometimes the wrong way. Um, I remember, do you remember when Harry Potter books were by the church, everybody's all upset, Harry Potter books. Everybody's like freaking out and burning. There were Christians burning Harry Potter books. Um, now, let me just say something about that. Um, if you're one of these Christians that think you should burn Harry Potter books, you also better burn C.S. Lewis books and J.R. Tolkien books uh, well, Brett, they're not, they're, they're Christian guys. Well, as it turns out, uh, J.R. Tolkien has wizards and stuff like that. Uh, C.S. Lewis has witches in his lion, witch in the wardrobe. Um, uh, Brett, are you arguing for Harry Potter? I'm not arguing for Harry Potter. I just don't think he's the biggest problem. Now, if your children are watching Harry Potter or whatever, now, and by the way, I'm coming from a little bit of ignorance because I haven't watched, you know, all the Harry Potter movies or read all the Harry Potter books. I, I, but I, I do know that it gets a little darker as the series goes along and stuff. And I understand that. And I understand why some Christians would say, you know, ah, we better not listen to those or watch those things. That's great if you want to say that. But I would argue Scooby-Doo is more dangerous. <laughs> and I'm not joking. I remember back, uh, you know, uh, when I was, uh, you know, taking my kids to a movie. Uh, you know, I remember when they were little, I forget when it was, I think it was somewhere around 2002, um, maybe, uh, I forget. But uh, I took them to the movie Scooby-Doo and, and thinking, oh, this is great, I loved Scooby-Doo. When I was a kid, you know, those dratted kids, you know, I'd, I'd get away with it, I wasn't one of those dratted kids, you know, and, and Scooby snacks and all that stuff, I thought it would be great. But we went into the movie theater and, uh, and suddenly, as I was listening to this, I couldn't believe this adult humor and sexual innuendo and all the wacko little subtle things there woven in a children's movie. Um, this is kind of interesting because, you know, what, what I've, I noticed about these movies and stuff is, um, uh, you know, uh, one of the things uh, is that, uh, you know, they sneak in stuff that is way more dangerous in a way, the sexual innuendo I'm more worried about your little sons hearing some of that stuff than, than I am about them becoming a warlock. I doubt your son's gonna become a warlock. It's very unlikely. Will he become a perverted guy that likes pornography? The chances of that are much greater, much, much greater. I'm telling you, mom, forget Harry Potter, uh, whatever. Uh, if your daughter's becoming a witch, tell her to stop it. 
But if you're watching stuff and letting into your stuff that's more, what I would say, more subtle, demonic type stuff, man, the, the enemy has a field day and he wants to deceive and he wants to, you know, uh, do all this evil, ugly stuff. Uh, by the way, James Gunn, who was the, the movie creator, I guess, or uh, Scooby-Doo, um, did you know that that, I didn't know this until later after I walked, we walked out of that uh, movie, uh, our family walked out of Scooby-Doo. Um, uh, later I found out uh, it was intended to have a darker tone and adult humor. In fact, its original rating was assigned at a rated R uh, rating. Uh, nobody knew that until um, 2017 when Gunn confirmed the speculation that his movie got a rated R rating. And so what they did is they changed some of the lingo, changed a little bit of the drawings that were less suggestive on the cartoon versions and stuff. And they sort of cleaned it up just to squeak it right under into the PG rating. Um, that's what they did with Scooby-Doo. That's, that's the way Satan works, you know. Uh, watch out for, you know, uh, you know people say, oh, the devil and, and, and all this stuff about all the heebie-jeebie head spinning and vomit. That's not the dangerous stuff. The dangerous stuff is the subtleties of the, of the devil whose deception is, um, he's, that's, his, that's his thing. So, um, you know, be careful. We learn more about Satan and his demons right here in this chapter and the way it works. Um, and uh, we, we realize a few things that, um, that are important as it relates to demon, demonology or the study of demon, demonic type power and what have you. Um, so we see right here in verse 14, um, he was casting out a devil and it was dumb. Now this, this is where the Jews would have had a, an interesting tradition, um, not stupid like dumb stupid, but wasn't able to talk. Jewish tradition before Christ, um, the rules of engagement with demons, this is something that's interesting, is you have to ask the demon to identify itself. That was something before Jesus even came. The Jews, if they were gonna try to work on something that was, was demonic or whatever, you had to ask the name. That was their rule. Um, so it's kind of interesting that Jesus followed that rule uh, often when he would um, you know, cast out demons. Luke chapter eight, we saw Jesus ask, what is your name? We are legion for we are many. Remember that? Um, that's, that was Jewish tradition that, that Jesus did that. I think that's interesting. Um, also, if the person was possessed and was made dumb, Jewish tradition said that that demon, you were unable to cast out that demon. It was impossible. That, that's what they said. Now, the reason that's important because Jesus just walks up and there's a dumb guy that's demon, demon possessed. All the Jews would have said, yeah, that one you can't cast out. That was the traditions of the Jews by that time. It was wrong, just as a lot of traditions of men are, but it was wrong. And Jesus just comes and blows it out of the water and casts out this dumb demon out of the sky. The guy's now totally in his right mind and talking like normal. This is why you notice a little different response here when the dumb spake and the people wondered. They'd already seen him cast out demons. They'd already seen him raise people from the dead. I mean, they've seen some pretty amazing things that Jesus does. Why does this one seem to catch their attention and wonder? Huh? Huh? And, and why are some people kind of freaking out? Like he has, he's doing this by the power of Beelzebub. Because the Jews would say, well, we know, which they were, they were the dumb ones in the story, we know that you can't cast out a demon if it's dumb. That was their tradition uh, of the day. So this is interesting. Um, you know, and by the way, the Jews would have just left the poor person uh, possessed uh, because they said it was an impossible situation. So Jesus does what they deem the impossible um, and he casts out a dumb demon and the, now the person sitting up there in the second part of verse 14, perfectly clear, talking, uh, what a miracle. And Jesus proves that he's got more power than everybody else. 
But verse 15 is where we see this, uh, this section. In fact, this story, I'm just gonna give you a few points to kind of ponder. Uh, the first thing we, we observe here is the accusation that they make. Number one, uh, there in verse 15, but some of them said he cast out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. Um, and that's, that's, that's what they said, man. He, he's under Beelzebub's influence. And why were they assuming that? That's a good question to kind of think about. The accusation is Jesus is using the power of Beelzebub, or perhaps um, they would believe also that Jesus himself was possessed with the power of Beelzebub. Um, and they were all amazed because they thought it couldn't be done. Um, now, with all that said, um, we have to ask, do, do we you know, do traditionally that which might not make us see that Jesus can do something? Do you ever say, well, that can't happen, or that's impossible? But without him, we can do nothing. But with him, all things become possible. Don't forget that. You might think, man, I'm just doomed. I got this problem in my life and there's no answer. But Jesus is the one who is the answer. And um, they, they forgot that. They didn't know that. That's kind of an important deal. But these people out of jealousy, maybe, some of them thinking, oh man, he's, he's got more power. We weren't able to cast out dumb demons. So now he's here. So they wanting to accuse him, say, you're doing this under the power of Beelzebub. That's the first accusation. The second comes from a different crowd. They're saying, uh, no, we, we're, we don't think you're from Beelzebub, but that's a pretty cool trick. Show us another trick. We see that here in verse 16. And others tempting him sought of him a sign from heaven. They were seeking a sign from heaven. Um, you know, um, basically they, they viewed the signs he was doing was a sign of the earth. Things that they were familiar with, casting out demons, raising sick people or dead people, but show us a sign from the heavens. That, that'll really convince us. Um, uh, what kind of a generation seeks after a sign, anybody? A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Signs and wonders, seeking after signs and wonders. Big mistake. Well, Brett, the Bible says that, you know, signs and wonders will follow them that believe. It does say that, but notice the difference. The believers aren't supposed to chase after signs and wonders. The signs and wonders follow those that believe. It's just a, a, like an after effect of being a Christian who loves the Lord and, and relies on his strength and power. There will be signs and wonders seen of the church of Jesus Christ, but that's not what we pursue. It's not what we look for. Some churches have kind of made it more of a pursuit of the sign and wonder. Um, that's always a mistake. Um, so, the, you know, they wanted a sign from heaven. Um, and so, um, you know, the two responses, Jesus, uh, is, it's not of God, it's from the devil, and they just didn't believe. This is the epitome of blasphemy, by the way. Um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, by the way, is, is them rejecting Jesus, um, ascribing his power to the devil. Um, but then the other group is show us something more, that the wicked uh, generation seeking after a sign. The answer to the second group seeking after a sign is gonna come later in the chapter. We'll see that here in a few minutes. So Jesus goes on then to respond to the accusation made. Um, and that brings us to point number two so far. Accusation number one, now Jesus' refutation of the situation. Look at it, verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because you say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. 
And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I will, uh, pardon me, verse 20, but if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, uh, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. Okay, Jesus gives the argument of them saying, you know, you're doing this under the power of Beelzebub. And he gives basically a three-tiered um, answer, three tiers of logic and, and, and truth that he does. The first one that we kind of notice here is um, he says, you guys are not being logical. It's illogical that Satan is casting out Satan. Um, I do like this argument because it is really a stupid argument uh, that they made. And Jesus says, are you kidding? Satan casting out Satan? Does that even make sense? Why would Satan cast out Satan? The house divided against itself is not gonna stand. So that's ridiculous. Uh, I'm casting out Satan by which I'm power, empowered by, that's ridiculous. Um, I like Jesus' just basic logic, you know. The second tier of Jesus' argument is their charge is self-incriminating. Did you notice that there? It says, um, you know, and if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Uh, therefore, they shall be your judges. Um, if Jesus did uh, this by the power of Beelzebub, then by what power did you guys do that? Now that's interesting. The implication, some of these Jewish people did in fact successfully cast out demons. That's, they probably did. We, we don't know for sure, but the implication here is Jesus saying, yeah, if you're, when your guys cast out, um, now it could be that he's saying this sort of facetiously, like when you guys cast out demon, which you haven't and you're total losers, like, do you understand what I said? Like, like, you know, when you guys did it, uh, and their answer would have to be, well, we've never done that, actually. So that's also self-incriminating. So either way, um, did the Jews cast out demons before Jesus? Probably yes. Um, Jesus is saying uh, either if the leaders never did cast out demons, let that be a charge against them. Uh, you know, what do you have to say for yourselves uh, by not casting out demons. But if they did cast out demons, then how, how do we know what power they did it by? You can equally ask the same question, by what source and power um, are you doing these things? Um, and then the third sort of uh, tier of Jesus's refutation against their accusation, their accusation was an admission of Jesus's power. We see that in verse 20. Um, but if, if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, if I, you know, you say I'm Beelzebub, that's not logical, but if I'm doing this by the finger of God, then uh, you guys are, you have to realize the kingdom of God, the king of kings, to, to have a kingdom, you have to have a king, and the kingdom is Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the king of kings. And he's saying, then you're gonna have to recognize who I really am. And that's the real issue of everything. Who do you believe Jesus is? Do you believe he's the king or do you believe he's the devil? And that's really what these people are gonna to have to decide. Um, but they admitted that he had power. They just were trying to ascribe the power to Satan, which is illogical. But if he does have power and it's not of Satan, then they better bow down and start worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's, that's what basically is happening here. Um, notice here that it says, um, with the finger of God. Boy, um, if you ever wanna do an interesting study, study the finger of God. Uh, I love it. 
um, there's an interesting compare and contrast in the Old Testament and the New. Um, in the Old Testament, the finger of God is kind of scary. Uh, does anybody remember, where do we see the finger of God in the Old Testament, anybody? Um, Daniel, remember Daniel? We see the hand writing, meeny, meeny, miny, mo. No, it didn't say that. It said, <laughs> meeny, meeny, tekel you farsin. Remember that, that, that phrase written on the wall against Belshazzar and the whole Babylonian uh, nonsense and it meant you've been weighed in the balances, you've been found a lightweight and you're doomed. Like that was a heavy word that the finger of God. Where else do we see the finger of God in the Old Testament? The 10 Commandments. Moses was hiding in the cleft of the rock and God writes the 10 Commandments with the finger of God, it says. Uh, the 10 Commandments, did that save anybody? No, it doomed us all. The finger of God of the Old Testament, you're kind of like, oh boy, scary stuff. But in the New Testament, we see the finger of God deliver this demon-possessed guy. In the New Testament, we see Jesus, who is God, reaching down to the sand and writing with his finger in the sand for who? The woman who was caught in adultery, who was, they were gonna kill her because of the law. But the finger of God wrote something. We don't know exactly what. Katagraphane is the Greek word, which means to write against. But we know this, one by one, those dudes from oldest to youngest dropped their rocks and went home. Uh, that was the finger of God that made those guys go away and was gracious to her. So it's just kind of a cool thing. But, but I love here, we see once again, Jesus saying, this is the finger of God. Notice it wasn't the Lord stomping on the head of Satan. That'd be a nice language to use. Why did he use that? I'll just give you a little visual. Are you ready? <laughs> is Satan hard for God to deal with? Um, it's like shoe fly, shoe, Lord of the flies. Um, it's like just a little, Satan is nothing compared to God. This is something we have to remember. God and Satan are not opposites. Jesus and Satan are not opposites. Um, God could just flick Satan and he'd be done. It'd be over. He could just think it and Satan, pink mist. Um, well, Brett, why doesn't he do that? Well, there's a long answer for that one. Uh, he's got a timing and a place and it's gonna happen eventually where Satan will be destroyed. But he has a purpose and a time for all of these things. So we have to trust the Lord knows what he's doing on that. I'll just give that the short answer. There is a better answer than that. But, um, but in the meantime, you know, Satan is not God's opposite. We shouldn't be running around like, chickens with our heads cut off. Oh, the devil, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna look out for the devil. The devil's gonna get you, you know, and, and we get all, oh, so, so, you know, Satan and churches get all freaked out. No, calm down, stop spinning heads and green vomit. That's not what we do. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. How much greater? Infinitely greater. John, 1 John 4, 4 reminds us of that. Um, so you never need to run around scared of all the evil. Now, if you're not a Christian, there is a difference. Uh, when you have Christ in you, um, you are under his protection. Uh, Christians cannot be possessed by demons. Where there is light, there can be no darkness. Just turn on the light switch, become a Christian, and Satan has no power. He can still sort of tempt and lure and say accusations and stuff like that, but he, he just has no power really against you. Satan is kind of like the toothless lion. Um, if you ever watched, Mar maybe some of you are old enough to remember Mar Marlon Perkins. Anybody remember Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom back when TV was still good? Um, I loved watching him and Jim go all over Africa and, you know, it was awesome. But poor Jim was always the guy, you know, see Jim, run from the Jaguar. It's like Marlon was always safe off in the Jeep, you know, and Jim was out there, 
You know, it's like, anyway, um, but I'll never forget, uh, I'll never forget, forget the, uh, the episode where they were demonstrating how the old lion that was toothless and, you know, weaker because he was just old, they still used him. Like the, 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 the female hunt, hunting lions, they were the ones that you had to watch out for. They were the strong, brutal uh, ones, but the roaring lion looked, looked intimidating. So, so the way these little lions and stuff, I call them little, I probably wouldn't call that to the face, but um, <laughs> out there in Africa, you know, the little gazelles just out there chewing their little cud, this cute little boing, 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 little gazelles are all innocent little gazelles. And then the roaring lion raises his head above the weeds and roars and the little gazelles, ah, and they run the other way. Meanwhile, the female hunting lionesses, they're on the other side of the field with their mouths open. And, and the gazelles come running right into the, the, the and there's like little Triscuit snacks, you know. Um, um, I, kind of, I, I kind of view that really as what Satan does. He's just the roaring lion. He's been defanged. Uh, when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the graves, the victory was won against Satan. Satan has no power against you, but he can roar. He can make noise and he can get people that are not linked to Jesus Christ, who's greater than Satan. So you gotta make sure you're a Christian. Um, but you know, the Bible does say, 1 Peter 5 eight, be sober, be vigilant, because Satan is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So he still wants to devour people. Um, but good news, when we have the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus on our side, uh, then we can be totally at peace. We don't have to be afraid. That's why we're not given over to the spirit of fear but of power and love and of a sound mind. That's why we're uh, saved as Christians. I love what Colossians says about this. <coughs> Excuse me, Colossians 2.15, having uh, Jesus having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. When Jesus died on the cross, there was a victory that was open victory that we know we can rest in. So you say, well, so uh, why does Satan still have his power now? Um, we don't know what's going on in the bigger picture. <clears throat> remember, <clears throat> remember the book of Job? You know, Job was there not knowing why Satan was messing with him, but there was a whole thing going on in heaven between God and Satan that was a debate. And Job just happened to be sort of the epicenter of that debate. And it was all for God to reveal that Job was gonna be faithful even through all this stuff. I just hope we're not Job. We don't end up in that situation. But... Excuse me, do you think Job regrets his life on earth now? Even though he went through horrible suffering on earth, I think Job is perfectly happy uh, in heaven for all eternity and he's not bummed out at all. Um, so um, Satan will eventually be taken out forever. Now, um, um, you know, all that to say here in our text, we see that Jesus just totally refute this whole thing about Satan um, uh, coming from his power or whatever. He, he gave this three arguments. Um, so we have the accusation, Jesus's refutation, and then we come to kind of a spiritual application uh, there in verse 23. It says, um, and by the way, you might, you might say, um, you know, um, Jesus or Satan, you know, uh, uh, well, what if you choose neither? What if you're a Portlandia person? You're like, I like to just say that I don't really believe Jesus or Satan. Uh, you got to choose because it says here in verse 23, he that is not with me is against me. That's what Jesus said. Um, I've marked that in my Bible because there's people that like to sort of play like they're kind of rejecting Jesus. Um, but uh, I would also reject Satan. But as it turns out, 
It's an either or in this life, in this world, in the cosmos, you have to choose. Are you gonna be of Jesus or are you gonna choose Satan? And not choosing Jesus is to choose Satan. Um, You're either for me or against me. This is what Jesus would teach. He that is not with me is against me. Um, What an important thing, you know. um, um, You know, Jesus, you know, some people make this mistake and it sounds so wonderful. Oh, Jesus was such a good teacher. He was a nice prophet. Um, He was a good example to us all. But if you're saying he is not Lord, uh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, then you are rejecting him and you're not with him. You're not, uh, you know, when Jesus says, he that is not with me is against me. Uh, Be careful, don't follow the Oprah Winfrey model. Well, he was a good teacher. He was a good example for us all. But you don't have to believe in Jesus only to be saved. That's a deadly, eternal deadly worldview. And it's a real, um, whether you want to admit it or not, it's a rejection of Jesus and his claims. Dangerous to start saying, oh, he was just a good teacher. Either, either he was the Lord of all and was saying true things or he was a horrible teacher because he claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus claimed and taught that there's no way to heaven except through him. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. Don't let people just say, oh, Jesus was just a good teacher or a great prophet or whatever. Um, that is to reject Christ ultimately. So it goes on. He that is not with me is against me and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. Interesting that Jesus would say, if you're not on my side and doing what I ask you to do, then um, you're actually part of the scattering and and destroying part of Satan. Um, Satan is a destroyer and a scatterer. Jesus happens to be a builder and a gatherer. He gathers, like a mother hen gathers her little chicks under her wing. That's the nature of Christ. He wants to gather. Satan wants to scatter, destroy, and wipe out. And you have to ask yourself, you know, am I more of a gatherer or a scatterer? Um, Am I more doing Satan type work or am I doing more of Jesus type work? Um, um, And so this is kind of the thing Jesus is talking about, this great divide between the way of Satan versus the way of Christ. I'll take the way of Christ any day over the way of Satan. Um, Good thing to ask yourself though, which side are you on? Verse 24 goes on. Interesting, he he gives some clear definition here about some stuff that's important. Verse 24, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and finding none, he says, I will return to my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Here Jesus is talking about a danger of casting out a demon out of a person. And you know, the house, if you would, of that person, this body is no longer possessed and is swept clean. The demon's gone. But Jesus is articulating something that that demon might come back later and say, hey, the house is clean, it's still here. I'm gonna come back in. Only this time I'm bringing a bunch of my buddies with me, a bunch of demons. Um, You know, he says he goes and takes to him seven other spirits. Remember the one in Luke 8 where there were legions of demons in one guy? I wonder if this guy had that kind of a thing happen. Maybe somebody tried to cast out the demon out of that guy only to have the demons come back exponentially in greater number. This is something Jesus is warning about. Um, By the way, I think there might be Old Testament pictures of when you open yourself up to demon or satanic type power, um, do you 
create a greater vulnerability in your, in your life when you open yourself up to evil? I think you do. And this is something we have to be really careful and cautious about. King Saul was a guy who had everything going for him. He was a head taller than everybody else, handsome, chosen by the people when they said, we want a king, we want a king. Going, okay, you're gonna get a king, here you go. And here's King Saul. But King Saul starts to lose it. Uh, he starts getting jealous and envious. I think je jealous and envious, um, those are good little open doors for Satan to get into somebody who's not a true believer in God, not a faithful believer. Um, I think Saul uh, was envious and jealous of David. And it seems, that if you read the narrative, does it seem like Saul just starts to slowly lose his mind in the narrative? I mean, he ends up hating David and hating his son. Remember, he make, made a decree to kill anybody who ate anything uh, when they were losing the battle. They said, okay, soldiers, you can't eat anything until we win. Is that a good idea? I say feed them some lasagna or something. Uh, they'll fight much more happily with a full stomach. But he said, no, nobody can eat. Do you remember what happened? His son, Jonathan, um, didn't get the decree that you weren't supposed to eat anything. So, so Jonathan went and got some honey on the end of his spear and was eating some of the honey off of the spear. Um, and then they said, hey, you're not supposed to eat. And they told Saul, your son, Jonathan, uh, ate some honey. Um, and do you remember what Saul said? Anybody? Okay, we're gonna go back, start in Genesis. And gonna go. um, King Saul said, okay, kill him. They said, he said, kill my son because he's not supposed to eat. I gave the decree and he ate something. So kill him, go ahead. And they, they said, uh, he's your son, you're, we can't do this. And long story short, uh, everybody started realizing Saul has lost his marbles. Was it losing of the marbles or was it Satan just filling his life? He ends up going to the witch at Endor. Sounds like speaking of Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or something. You know, he went to the, the witches of Endor. <laughs> that's where Saul, like you gotta know you're doing something bad when you're going to see the witch at Endor. Uh, that's what the Bible says. Because he wanted to communicate with the dead. Is that a good plan as a you know, good godly person? No. Um, but King Saul just went nuttier and nuttier, or you might even say maybe more demonic as the time went by. And it's because I think he opened his life, uh, these doors of his life to demonic sort of, um, you know, influence. You know, um, even, you know, there, I mean, we can go on and on about some of the stuff, but, you know, uh, what are the big doors I think Satan uses today in, 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 in people to uh, get them off course or maybe even an open window for Satan to sort of mess around is I think drugs and alcohol is a big one. I see that in modern times, how often drugs and alcohol um, are influencing. In Galatians 5.20, the word um, witchcraft is talked about. Um, uh, but the, the word for witchcraft and black magic and the occult and stuff, by the way, um, happens to be pharmakia. That's the Greek word where we get our word pharmacy. Kind of interesting. Um, if you look up pharmakia in the Greek, the use uh, uh, or the administering of drugs, uh, num definition number two, poison. Uh, definition number three, sorcery, magical arts, and idolatry. <laughs> that's, that's interesting meanings there. Um, but I've noticed when drugs are involved, weird things go on. Yeah. Uh, you know, some of you drug people, like, yeah, I'm still having those uh, from my LSD back in the 70s. Like, <laughs> like it's bad. There's, some bad. there's some bad trips people have gone on. And, um, and by the way, uh, nobody really wants to talk about this, but it's something that's really important. Did you know that most of the suicides you see today um, include some sort of medication or drug in their bodies? Most. By far most. Sources, substance abuse and mental health services administration, suicides and suicide attempts 
are significantly um, affected by substance use. The National Library of Medicine said suicide risk associated with drug and alcohol dependence is the greatest um, cause of suicide death uh, in the world today. Southern California Sunrise Recovery Center talks about those with alcohol dependence are 10 times more likely than the general population to commit suicide. Those who use drugs are 14 times more likely to do so. At least 25% of the people with alcohol or drug addiction commit suicide. That's a horrible statistic. Additionally, more than 70% of adolescent suicides, 70% of adolescent suicides are associated with drug and alcohol use and dependence. Um, now, I'm thankful for medicine, uh, for pain reliever, local anesthetic, but um, I think our culture uh, has obviously gone too far when it comes to medicine uh, and, and what have you. It's not just the fentanyl that's killing our kids, that too. But um, I, I think if we're really honest, we have to be really careful about medicines we prescribe, um, especially when we're talking about issues of the soul, your mind, your emotions, depression, anxiety. Um, I'm not saying never. I'm just saying, Christians, you should be wise and prayerful about anything you do with medicine. I think it's something that you shouldn't take lightly. Um, not all drunks and druggies have demons. But I do believe that that tends to be one of those doors that opens. If you go downtown Portland today and you see what's happening there, it's, you, you realize there's drugs as the syringes are laying everywhere on the ground in Portland, Oregon. Um, but you also get a sense there's something very demonic going on with these poor people who have opened that door at some point in their life to uh, pharmacia, if you would. Um, now, the way you fix it, I believe, is the, the key is to where there's light, there can be no darkness. We're gonna talk about the light of Christ. By the way, did you know AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, started out as really kind of a Christian sort of thing? And the answer was Jesus. Um, it's kind of an interesting thing, the higher power uh, that they call now, uh, a power greater than ourselves, whatever that is to you now. Um, I'm gonna tell you, AA took the power out of their program when they did that. When they called it the higher power, which is that doorknob or whatever, you know, whatever you wanna think is the higher power, they took the power out of it. Um, you know, ABC News did a thing way back in 2010, this is an old, but it, it, it was interesting to, to see how um, the big book, um, uh, you know, of AA, Alcohol Anonymous, original big book manuscript. Um, the, you know, now it's 70, or you know, how this article said it was 70 years old, so probably 80 now, but um, shows Christian, Christian references have been toned down. This article goes on, the original manuscript written in 1939 by AA co-founder Bill Wilson was heavily edited to make it less religious and more welcoming to uh, people who did not consider themselves Christians. Um, they didn't want uh, to turn people off, but the heart of the 12 steps was in fact a spiritual program. Um, you know, uh, but all that to say, uh, it's sad because I believe that that's one of, remember when Jesus said, you can take the demon out, but be careful. Seven others will come back stronger than they were before. I think that's what AA is doing unknowingly maybe. They can help someone get off of alcohol, but the question is, what is gonna fill their life if it's not Jesus? If you don't fill your life with Jesus, you're living your uh, life open to something perhaps even worse if you're not careful. Uh, Jesus is what you need. Um, so if you get clean and you don't fill it with Christ, it can become, become even worse than before. And that's what we see Jesus talking about here. Um, 
Now, some people say there's a big shift now in the story, but maybe not. Let's keep continue here in verse uh, 27. Um, it says here in verse 27, and it came to pass as he spake these things, uh, a, um, a, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, blessed is the womb that bare thee and the paps which thou hast sucked. Huh? <laughs> verse 28. But he said, yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. <laughs> Interesting little exchange here between Jesus and the um, paps woman, uh, whatever you want to call her. Uh, um, strange greeting from this woman. What in the world's going on here? Um, now, the woman noted that it must have been wonderful to have been Jesus's mother. Um, I always feel a little weirded out about that. Oh, you, you, you know, it must have been amazing to be your mom. Like, that, 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 this is weird. Um, and by the way, uh, I've noticed church people are sometimes like that. I've been around church all my life. People say weird things sometimes. Um, just gonna say, uh, I'm sure it's not you. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you're on staff here or whatever, and you, you hear people, people say kind of the weird, you're like, whoa, where did that come from? Hmm. Um, but anyway, the idea... Uh, you know, uh, of, of, you know, uh, to the Jews. Now this, this, you might call this in some ways, um, you know, this, this woman is trying to maybe gain favor somehow with Jesus by sort of indirectly saying, oh, it would have been a blessing to be your mother. Um, and picturing Jesus saying, oh yeah, I'm sure she was really blessed to have me. Um, she somehow thought that would be a cool, cool thing to say. Um, but you have to also understand the Jews, the idea of your family and your physical relationship with other people um, was more important in that day um, and to the Jews than, than perhaps it is even today with us. We deem family as important. Would you say we think family is important? But one thing you'll notice, and I'm not diminishing family, although some of you are saying, man, I don't know how important family is. My family hates me. Um, my parents have disowned me because I'm a Christian. But one of the things you kind of see Jesus doing, and I have to be careful, on this one. But you do see Jesus sort of downplay the role of family, especially if it's in context to the relationship you have with Christ. Uh, remember when his mother and brothers came and they said, hey, your mother and brother, and they said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Was Jesus being disrespectful? No, but see the Jews had this really heavy link to family link. And this lady is, is sort of overblowing what a beautiful blessing it would have been to be Jesus's mother. But, um, but it's not about Jesus's mother. And if you're you know, raised in the Catholic tradition, I'll put an exclamation point on that just for some of you. Because you know, if you go to the Catholic church, they, they pretty much venerate Mary to a level that's very unhealthy. Uh, Mary was an amazing woman. Uh, you know, she was blessed among women. The Bible does say that. I'll, I'll give it to you, that amazing young girl that Mary was. But um, you know, what we also have to realize is it's really not about Mary, it's about you know, the, the, the one she gave birth to. Um, and Jesus would seem to always point out that a physical relationship was less important compared to, to something like hearing the word of God. Did you see what he said? She said, oh, it must've been awesome to be your mom. And she said, nah, instead, rather blessed or happy, not is my mom, but happy are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus was putting a precedent, a priority on just obedience. Um, Today, we might more easily understand the term, you know, she was sort of virtue signaling. Uh, 
here as a, um, you know, saying, oh, it would have been awesome to be your, your, your mother, you know, kind of thing. But um, basically Jesus is saying, no, you need to put some action behind what you're saying, not just lip service, if you would. Uh, don't just talk the talk, but walk the walk. And this lady was saying something that she probably was ill-intentioned. She was trying to say something that would gain some kind of favor or people would go, wow, what a profound thing to say. But Jesus is like, yeah, whatever, uh, better better to keep and you know, hear the word of God and, and keep it. Um, the reason I sort of you know, camp out on that, I've noticed a lot of the commentaries on this, uh, these two verses, 27, 28, uh, Jay Vernon McGee just skips over it all together. He doesn't even mention those two verses. And I understand why, I'm talking about a pap lady here. Um, whatever that is. But, um, but uh, Jay Vernon's like, yeah, dearly beloved, let's go to verse 29. You know, uh, I like that. Uh, but I stuck on this because I'm probably stupid. But anyway. Um, by the way, when it comes to, um, you know, when it comes to um, the New Testament accounts of Mary, you know, she is an amazing girl in the story, in the narrative. Um, but it's funny, we don't see her leading the church in the book of Acts. Um, you know, uh, we, talk, we talk about the male leaders of the church in Acts, uh, you know, in fact, um, the one mention she really kind of gets is Acts 1.14. These all continued one accord in prayer and supplication uh, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with all his brethren. That's kind of the mention she gets in the book of Acts and further. The last words ever recorded by Mary is in John chapter 2, verse 5. His mother said unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. That's a good word from Mother Mary. Whatever he says, do it. Not whatever I say, don't, don't use me as a mediator between God and man. First Timothy 2.5, there's, there um, there's only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. So the praying to the saints and what have you, I understand the logic the Catholics use. Well, it's like asking your friend to pray for you. Um, but the difference is your friend is alive, the saints are dead. So you're asking dead people to pray and intercede on behalf of you as dead people. Uh, that's nowhere in the Bible and it's totally wacko by some papal edict and some you know, um, you know, resolution that came in the Catholic church that was just a harebrained idea. It's not in the Bible anywhere, praying to the saints or Mary being any kind of a mediator. It's actually opposite of what the Bible says. There's only one mediator um, and that's God. So this lady's sort of exalting Mary and Jesus says, uh, no. Just do what, I, do what I say, you know, do what the word says and keep those things. Um, now, um, after he says that, uh, he goes back into verse 29, where um, is Jesus is gonna continue to sort of um, refute those people that wanted a sign. Remember back others, verse 16, that were tempting him, testing him, wanting to see another sign. Now Jesus is gonna address that issue in, in verse 29. And when the people were gathered thick, together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. They seek a sign and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so shall also the son of man be to uh, this generation. Um, now, um, the, first of all, let's notice Jesus is being kind of heavy here, like brutal to these people that are asking for a sign. But I want to remind you in verse um, 16, they, they were saying this not to really look for a sign, but they were tempting him, testing him. Um, uh, they were trying to trip him up is the idea. So Jesus gets pretty um, coarse, I should say, 
cross, if you would, with these guys. Um, now, the, the closer we get to the cross, the more belligerent um, people get. Eventually they wanna kill him, these same people. Um, and so Jesus is starting to kind of say words that are pretty heavy. Man, you know, what a, you know, he says about the sign that wants, the, the generation that wants a sign. He says, you're a wicked, evil generation. That's a pretty sharp thing to say, calling someone, you are evil. Um, but that's what these people were. Jesus calls them out and calls it like it is. And he says, there, there won't be any sign given you except for one, the sign of Jonah and Nineveh, which if you know that story, that's a pretty scary story. Um, we always remember as coloring kids, you know, coloring Jonah in the belly of the whale and all that stuff. But that's part of the story for sure. And it's part of what Jesus is talking about here. But there's another part. The, the original intention for, was Jonah to go into the city of Nineveh and say, you're all doomed. You're all gonna go down uh, unless you repent. And Jonah said, I don't wanna go to the Ninevites. They were a horribly wicked people, the Ninevites, and scary too. They were a scary bunch. They could, they'd skin you alive, those people from Assyria, the Ninevites. Um, so Jonah's like, I'm not going. So he runs the other way. You know the story. He ends up you know, being thrown overboard. Fish swallows him. He gets half digested. I mean, being in the belly of a, belly of a whale for, or a big fish for three days and three nights, man, that does a number on your clothes. I, I, uh, scholars have tried to speculate what Jonah looked like after three days. They say probably um, the gastric juices in the fish's belly probably already deteriorated all his clothes probably bleached out his skin very, very white and maybe even took his hair off of his body, all of his hair. So now you got a naked Mr. Clean on the beach. <laughs> and the Bible says, he goes into Nineveh and says, okay, everybody repent. And they all look at him ah! and say, okay, we'll repent. Whatever happened to you, we don't want to have happened to us. I'm like, this is a great story, but, but it's also a story of wrath and God's judgment upon a city. And then when the whole city repents, Jonah's like, bummer. I wanted them all to be destroyed. He sat under his gourd and pouted. If you remember the story, it's, it's, he was one of the weirdest prophets of the Old Testament. Successful, but weird. Um, you say, well, then what does this have to do with Jesus? Why would Jesus say, this will be the sign? Um, well, if you take just Luke's account here, you might, you might say, wow, Jesus is coming and warning them. Warning, even as Jonah warned the Ninevites, there was a warning going on. But Matthew's gospel gives us a little more uh, about that. It's not just that. It could be that too. Repent. Remember, Nineveh had to repent. And they did repent and they were saved. And Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So that could be just from Luke's account. We could go away with that and say, okay, that's cool. We get it. But Matthew gives us something more. Let me just re re review that for those of you who weren't with us in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 40. Um, in the same account here in Matthew's account, but he, Jesus answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. So shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, now we start to see, oh, this is what he meant. You can still make the argument for the repentance and all that stuff because that's part of the deal. But, but Matthew uh, zeroes in and says, um, no, it's, it's what Jesus is, is gonna do. Now, by the way, what did Jesus mean? Even as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so shall the son of man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. What's, what's up with that? 
Well, if you know your Bible, and this is one of those things that is not greatly known, but it is, what happened to Jesus after he died on the cross? His body, of course, was placed in the tomb. But where did his soul go? What happened there? Well, the Bible tells us, it's Ephesians chapter four, verses eight through 10. Wherefore he saith, when he uh, ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts unto men. Now, now this parenthetical statement explains something here now in verse nine. He says, now that he ascended, it is it, but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He uh, that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fulfill all things. Well, what was he doing in the lower parts of the earth? And where is the lower parts of the earth? I don't have the foggiest idea. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, Where is the lower parts of the earth? Is it in the center of the earth? Is it in some other place in a different dimension of time and space? I have no idea. Um, But the Bible calls it the, the, the lower parts of the earth. So let's just leave that there for a second. What did Jesus do? Before he ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives, what did he first do? He first descended. After he died on the cross, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. And it says there in the first part of this, he led captivity captive. If you'd use Luke chapter 16, Abraham's bosom, the paradise side, the Hades side, it seems that Jesus led the people that were in paradise, which is not heaven, but the other side of Hades and Sheol, the good side where Abraham and all the Old Testament believers were, those people were led, the King James captivity captive, you might say set free. That's maybe an easier way to say it. Jesus took those people from paradise and then he ascended. And and before he ascended, he descended, took the people that were there and brought them into heaven. Well, what about the people that were in Hades part of it? I think they're still there. Aren't they in hell? Not really, they're in Hades, which is kind of like hell. When does hell as we know it, maybe the Greek word will help you, the Gehenna version of hell. When does that come into place, anybody? Yes, the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, where all of death and hell, Hades and Sheol, will be thrown into Gehenna. I know this is confusing if you're new to the Bible, but um, I'm just trying to kind of prime the pump here because we're gonna be covering a bunch of this stuff as we continue to go through the New Testament. So this is what Jesus is referring to. Even as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so too Jesus went into the the lower parts of the earth. And there's scriptures that tell us even what he was doing there about how he was preaching not to the people in heaven, but the the demons in hell. He was preaching. Um, And was he preaching for salvation? No, he was preaching to condemnation. That's a whole nother thing. We've got a lot of uh, stuff we can talk about. We will, Uh, we'll get into that more later on in the New Testament. But um, all that to say, Jesus... um, is saying, this is the sign. Now, um, how is that a sign to the unbelieving crowd that he's talking to? The answer is pretty simple. It's, um, it's that Jesus would die and then he would resurrect from the grave. That's the main point of what he's saying. You want a sign? This is the one sign I'm gonna give you that if you um, kill me, I will. It's the same thing that he was saying. Remember when he was there on the temple? If you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus is saying the same thing here. Um, you want a sign? Uh, the signs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the way, I have to say, there's no greater sign that Jesus ever gave us than the fact that he was crucified and everybody saw it. He died and everybody knew it. He was buried and everybody was a part of that. And the Romans sealed the tomb. One of the most amazing things that ever happened in the history of the world is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the most documented eyewitness account of anything in history. And yet still people try to, oh, we don't know that Jesus even really existed. That's ridiculous. 
The whole world was turned upside down when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And hundreds of people believed it so much that when they said, deny Jesus and say, Caesar is Lord, so convinced were they that Jesus rose from the grave as this one big sign, they said, we will not deny Jesus. We saw him raise with our own eyes. And when they were sawn in half or beaten over the head with clubs, burned at the stake, torn by the lions, these Christians that lived that time period, you'd think one of them would have cracked and said, okay, we stole the body and we made it look like he rose from the grave, but he really didn't. It's one of the most unlikely narratives to actually have any doubt. I mean, that Jesus was the one who rose from the grave. So Jesus is really telling us, this is the one sign they're gonna get is when you destroy this body, three days later, I'm gonna raise up from the grave. Um, Now, um, back to our text here. Um, In verse 31, he goes on with sort of the indictment against these people. It says in verse 31, the queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment with this generation they, uh, and, and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. So do you see how Jesus in his Jonah illustration, he's got two parts of it. One, the three days in the belly of the whale, which is the being buried for three days. And then also the repentance of the Ninevites. Both of those parts were his component of his argument of why these people seeking a sign is a wicked and adulterous generation. But this generation is gonna be shamed by the Ninevites and by the queen of Sheba. Um, What's the queen of Sheba all about? The queen of the South? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse one, it talks about how the queen of Sheba came because of the fame of Solomon and his wisdom had, had gone across the whole earth, you know, and, and, uh, um, and especially his wisdom concerning, you know, the name of the Lord. So she came to prove or test him with hard questions, the Bible tells us. And she did her, her uh, hard work in discerning what, what was true about Jehovah, the God of the Jews. She went back, it seems, as a real believer and um, believed in God. And, you know, it's interesting about the Queen of Sheba, even though she was from the Africa region, um, many people believe that's where all these sort of African Jews sort of came from, uh, where a lot of people, uh, you know, during the Old Testament period started becoming sort of Jewish. Um, Some people even say, like, you know, the the guy who carried the cross of Jesus. He was an African guy from the African continent of Africa. And there he was in Jerusalem. What was he doing in Jerusalem? Uh, He might've been one of the fruits of the Queen of Sheba's visit to Solomon. There was was actually quite a movement there. So kind of cool when you see that, but but, uh, she was receptive. And that's the point. These people were not receptive to Jesus. Um, and he says, man, the queen of Sheba is gonna rise up in judgment against you guys because you not only had Solomon, you had a greater than Solomon. Um, you had God in the flesh, God incarnate, and you rejected him. That's what he's saying. So these are heavy, heavy words that Jesus is saying, indicting these people. Verse 33, it says, no man, when he hath lighted a candle, put it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick that they which come in may see the light. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, thy whole body also is full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy body 
also is full of darkness. Remember the thing we were talking about where there's light, there can be no darkness? And now we're talking about letting the light or the darkness in the window of your eye. This is what Jesus is talking about here. Um, is your eye full of light or is it full of darkness? And again, remember, you're either for them or against them. It's either light or darkness. If you have a dark room, if you wanna get the darkness to flee, what do you do? You scream at the darkness? No, what do you do? Turn on a light switch. And once the light gets turned on, the darkness is no longer. It's very, very, I love the, the uh, idiom here, the, the analogy that Jesus is giving of light and dark, because that's the way it is. You either have the light or you do not, you're in darkness. And this is gonna force people to say, am I of the light? Am I a child of the light? Or am I a child of the darkness? Um, verse 35, take heed therefore that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body therefore be full of light, having no part of dark, the whole shall be full of light as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. What's the context of this? Jesus just delivering a guy from darkness, the demonic darkness that was in him. And the idea is you gotta replace that empty house that we were talking about there in verse 24 with the light and, and make sure to keep the light on. Otherwise you leave the house empty for darkness to fill again. And this is all, I think this whole section that we've just read is all part of the same discussion. Um, and the, the question I think, um, do we have the light of Jesus Christ in us? Um, that's, that's important, you know, in 1 John 1, John the apostle talks about this all the time. If we say we have fellowship with him, uh, but we walk in darkness, we're lying. We're lying, it says. You're like, oh yeah, I love Jesus, but we're doing a bunch of dark, evil deeds. The Bible says you're lying against the truth. And then it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. How, how is it that we can hang out together as a church um, for us to walk in the light? But when we sin, which we do, to also recognize that it's the blood of Jesus that washes us clean. Um, now, this is something that's a key to feeling like you're part of the church. And by the way, I think that some people misunderstand church hurt for what John says in 1 John 1, 5 and 7. If you're walking in darkness and you feel like you're not welcomed in the church or somebody says something, we have, we've had people get furious at Athey Creek for, for reasons like this. Let me just give you one example. Young couple comes in, they've been going to Athey Creek for a while and they love the church and all that. And then we say, hey, you know, um, you know are you guys living together? Oh yeah, 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 but we're, we're you know, um, we're, we're, that's why we're getting married. Yeah, but the Bible says, you know, uh, you know that sexual relationship outside of marriage is, is unacceptable. It's, it's called sin. Oh, don't judge us. Um, everybody sleeps together and come on, it's better on our checkbook and we're just you know, trying to survive and blah, 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 blah. And we say, no, you know, th this is what the Bible says. And so here's the thing, as a pastor, uh, if I'm gonna marry you, I'm not, I don't wanna just say wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Like when I tell, I'll look the guy in the eye and I'll say, now when I'm gonna have you exchange vows with her, one of the things you're gonna say is, I promise to lead you in the ways of the Lord. That's one of our vows we like to have guys say, because that's important. Husbands are to, to lead like Jesus led, loving, unconditional, sacrificial love. But that guy's wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Is, that, is he unconditionally, sacrificially loving his, his girl? No, he's having sex before marriage because that's a very selfish, very you know, human-driven desire that he has, not, he has not said, I'm gonna kind of be patient and wait like the Bible says. Well, Brett, you're just judging that poor couple. No, it's more about me. I can't, with integrity, 
be a pastor that says, oh yeah, you're gonna be sleeping with each other and totally going against the Bible. And then I'm gonna have you exchange godly vows and, and act like it's all true when it really is not. So I'll, I'll give them a choice. I'll say, you know, hey, you can, you can either A, separate your living conditions, repent, and, and just do the right thing. Uh, even though it's hard, dude, move in with your mom and dad again before you get married. Uh, but let's, you know, let's do this thing right. And, 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 uh, and sometimes couples will do that. And by the way, when they repent of their sins and do it the right way, it's amazing how the Lord blesses them as a couple. And they all come back and say, thank you for telling us what was true. But many times they'll go away saying, oh, Athey Creek's just a judgmental church. They were criticizing us. We're out of here. And we're going to do a review on Facebook. <laughs> we're going to yelp it up. And you can do that if you want to, but, um, you know, it's not, and, and then they'll, they'll claim church hurt. Uh, they were judgmental. They don't love people. Um, but it's actually the opposite. The reason we say, you know, sometimes love hurts when you're talking about something that's important and true. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. Jesus said, or, you know, through John in his word, John, first John, he said, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, guess what? We have fellowship one with another. But if we walk in darkness, we lie and we're not holding the truth. Don't be shocked if you're just openly, blatantly doing something just purposefully. Not that we, we all sin, but if you're embracing your sin and just living out your sin, don't be shocked when you don't feel part of fellowship. We have fellowship as we walk in the light as he is in the light. Then we have fellowship one with another. And then when we make mistakes, which we all do, and repent of those sins, then guess what? The Lord says, I'll wash you in my blood and I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's called the gospel. Um, I love that part. Um, implication, there are those who appear to be of the light, but are actually living in the darkness. So who then has the light? Psalm 119, um, verse uh, 105, it says this, um, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I think light really starts with knowing and reading and receiving and hearing the Bible. Just like Jesus told the woman, uh, yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. That's where the light begins, if you ask me. Um, in John chapter eight, verse 12, then spake Jesus again to them saying, I am the light of the world. Um, he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Um, Second Corinthians uh, four, verses three through six. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world, that's Satan, interesting name for Satan, the God of this world, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Uh, the second part of that goes on in verse five. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves um, your servants for Jesus' uh, Jesus's sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, man, we could just go on and on. Ephesians chapter five, verse eight through 14. For you were sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, um, for the fruit of the spirit is, uh, in, is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord and having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest or made known by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, awake thou that sleepest, 
arise from the dead and Christ shall give thee light. Um, just one more, uh, John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as the other lights, we have fellowship. There's that, there's that scripture I was giving you earlier. Fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. You gotta ask yourself, is my life full of lightness or darkness? Um, and one of the things we should do as Christians is pursue the light. The, starting with the word of God, the light unto our feet, the lamp unto our path. And then in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the living word, the light of the world. And if we walk in that, there's, there's just a different, the whole different level that the Lord wants us to live in. And to embrace dark things is where we wonder, why is my life feeling so dark? Um, you gotta turn on the light switch, which is to bring more of Jesus. Even the secular world knows uh, the difference between light and dark. Um, all the creepy bars where people go to drown their sorrows and to be unfaithful in their marriages and do dastardly deeds and get drunk with alcohol, they're all dark, dark, dark. Um, I've always wanted to go into a bar with a bunch of Christian guys and say, let's, let's turn on the lights in here. Let's see what's going on. <laughs> see what's going on. Like turn on all the fluorescence, you know, in the, in the bar. And it's like bugs when you lift a rock, you know, it's like, you know, all these, um, the, 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 you know, 55 year old lady singing feeling and says, hey, nothing more than, and suddenly the light, like, oh boy, it's like, yeah, it's not a good, not a good thing. Um, and all that alcohol is making you think she was hot. Um, it's just darkness. Like the world is, Darth Vader, is, uh, that's, that's a good example, darkness. Uh, like like it's, it's actually, you can actually see the darkness. What you're watching and the movies you're looking at and the books you're reading and the podcasts you're listening to, a Christian who has Christ, they're gonna be able to see the darkness. Um, you know, and, and that's something we're supposed to do. Romans 13, 12 talks about how the night is far spent. Let us put off our uh, garments of darkness and put on the armor of light. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible has so much to say about all that. May the Lord just give us that light. And we'll pick it up uh, in verse 37 because we have the great woes that Jesus is gonna give. And I don't wanna hurry through this last section. So we'll pick that up uh, maybe this weekend. Who knows? We'll see. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would uh, make us to be children of the light. Lord, we want that. Forgive us where we've embraced darkness of this world. And um, I pray that we would have rich fellowship here at Athey Creek, one with another as we walk in the light. Um, because your word tells us, well, then we have fellowship one with another. And your blood um, from your son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That's the one common thing we have. None of us are perfect, Lord, but we have been perfectly forgiven by the precious blood of Jesus. How thankful we are, Lord. And I pray that this Christmas season, as Christmas lights go up and people are uh, maybe more open to talking about the light, I would pray, Lord, that, um, that you just fill our lives full of more of you and that we'd be uh, not hiding our light under a bushel, but presenting Jesus, the light of the world, to everyone this, this Christmas season. So bless the church family as we close our Bibles, Lord, would our hearts stay open and receptive to you. In Jesus' name, amen.